Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's Easter message is entitled, The Greatest Upset of All Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. A couple of weeks ago, history was made in the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. Brackets were filled out, bets were placed in Las Vegas, expectations were set, many experts had uh, made the 31-2 Virginia Cavaliers a number one seed. And for those of you that don't follow college basketball, uh, this meant they strolled into the tournament and were anointed as one of the four teams most likely to win the national title, to make it to the Final Four. This all changed, though, in their first tournament game. On a Friday night, just a couple of weeks ago, 16th-seeded University of Maryland, Baltimore County Retrievers, or UMBC for short, shocked number one-seeded Virginia destroying them by 20 points. Being a 16 seed, by the way, again, for those of you that don't follow college basketball as closely as I do, if you're a 16 seed, just think of it as you're one of the last ones picked to get into the tournament. It's like in grade school when you're going to play kickball or basketball or something, and you line up along, this was, who I, this was my story at least, I, I won't speak for you, you line up along the, the wall, you know, and the captains are picking teams, and, and it was, oh, who gets carry? Uh, all right, you can have him this time. So that's what a 16 seed is. You just kind of squeak into the tournament. You're not expected to last long. You're going to be a quick, easy out because the number one seed, they're the powerhouse team that's going to go far and win the national title. Well, the 16-seeded UMBC Retrievers beat the Virginia Cavaliers by 20 points. The game's final score was shocking because in addition to their 31 regular season wins, Virginia also had the nation's best defense, while UMBC had an offense that was ranked 212th in the country. It was the first time in tournament history that a 16th seed had upset a number one seed. UMBC's victory was so unexpected that many experts are now calling it the biggest upset in the history of the men's NCAA tournament. And one of the greatest sports upsets of all time. Experts on ESPN and CBS Sports are putting it up there with the uh, 1980 U.S. hockey team Olympic victory over Russia. It's up in that category. Brackets were busted, bets were lost, and expectations crushed. The dictionary defines an upset as a defeat of a person or team that was considered more formidable to create a state of disorder or an unexpected defeat. An upset defies odds, ruins the over-under, and changes history. It's when someone who has dominated is suddenly defeated. It's when 
that's not supposed to happen, happens. With all due respect to the University of Maryland in Baltimore County retrievers, there is an even bigger upset that took place 2,000 years ago, and we're celebrating it today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, and if you forgot your Bibles, just raise your hands, and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We can loan you a Bible. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. We're just going to spend a few minutes in the Scriptures this morning, and I want to show you uh, the first message that was preached after Jesus' resurrection. Now, when I, when I teach the scriptures, I like to provide what's called a big idea. For those of you that are visiting today, when I just kind of explain how, how we do this at Vanguard, um, the big idea is what I call the sermon in a sentence, and it's, it's, that's because it, I, I'm trying to condense down into one memorable, simple sentence the point of the message. So that if you remember anything, hopefully you'll remember this. I want to encourage you to follow along and take notes with the sermon note handout that's in the worship folder you received today. There's a simple outline so that you can fill in some blanks and uh, hopefully leave with some, some meaningful points today from the scriptures. Here's the big idea, and it's this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest upset of all time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the biggest upset of all time. You see, for thousands of years leading up to 33 AD, death had an undefeated record. It had an unstoppable offense and an unbreakable defense. Until 33 AD, one out of one people died. Death's statistics were impeccable. And then they stayed dead, by the way. Once they were dead and they were buried, they didn't come back out again. That was the norm. That's what everybody expected. That's what everybody was used to. That's what everybody had seen. On Good Friday, the Lord Jesus Christ was executed on a cross for the sins of the world and then buried in a tomb. He was supposed to stay there because that's what everybody else that had died before him had done. But instead, three days later, what's not supposed to happen, happened. The one thing that had always been formidable was unexpectedly defeated. The stone that sealed the tomb rolled away. Jesus got up and walked out. Coming back from the dead three days later had never been done before, and it's never been done again since. And Easter is a celebration of that upset. Now, in Acts uh, chapter 1, the resurrection of Jesus basically had taken place, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is saying goodbye to his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven to be with his Father. In chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then begin spreading Jesus' message. The text that we're going to look at briefly today in Acts chapter 2 contains Peter's first sermon after Jesus' ascension. And so if you would look with me at uh, Acts 2, 22 to 24, uh, Peter says to his audience in Jerusalem, Men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him in the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then verse 32, Peter repeats his point. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Here's the first point that Peter is trying to make, and this is number one on your outline. Jesus is the real Son of God. He's the real Son of God. Peter's trying to make this point to his Jewish audience here because his audience didn't actually believe that. Some thought Jesus was just a good man who had high morals. Others thought that he was a compelling teacher, while still others thought, he's just crazy. He says crazy things we've never heard before. But Peter reminds his listeners that Jesus was unlike any man before. There were nearly 300 Old Testament prophecies and references to a coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled all of them, down to every I dotted and every T crossed. He thus proved that he was the Son of God. Now Peter says there are two ways that he did it. And he's being very simple here uh, with his audience, but... Uh, there are many ways, but two that are mentioned by Peter, and these are letter A and B on your outline. First of all, he proved it with his life. Jesus proved he was the Son of God, fulfilling the almost 300 prophecies about him down to the T's and the I's crossed with his life. Peter says in verse 22, if you look in your Bible, he did mighty works, wonders, and signs. Jesus did things in his lifetime that normal men did not do and no other man had done. During his earthly ministry, he performed at least 37 miracles that were seen and recorded by multiple witnesses. He changed the weather. He healed the sick, changed water into wine. He raised the dead a couple times. And these were just the ones that we recorded, were recorded. Even John, one of Jesus' closest apostles, uh, said in John chapter 21, verse 25, it's the very last, book, last verse in the Gospel of John, John said this, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So, so just be, I mean, is 37 miracles enough? I mean, no, he needed to do 252, and I needed them documented in here. No, no, really. There probably were more. It's just this is all that was written down, and this is all that God decided was sufficient for those to believe in him. Jesus performed miracles because the power of God resided in him, and the power of God resided in him because he was God. Next, Peter says, Jesus proved he was God, and here's letter B, 
with his death. Peter proved that he was, excuse me, Jesus proved that he was God with his death. Jesus predicted his resurrection at least 17 times throughout all four Gospels. Now, if you don't think that's impressive, try predicting where you're going to be next week at exactly a certain time, and then try to control the whole world and everything to make sure your life doesn't get interrupted and that you actually end up where you said you were going to be. You know that sometimes it's just not possible. There are things you can't control. There are things that happen that you didn't plan on. But Jesus said, I'll be crucified on a cross, and I will come back and raise myself three days later. And he did. It's worth noting that in this first public proclamation by Peter about what had actually happened, this is the first time he's proclaiming it and spreading the message, but it's also worth noting that there's no argument made by Peter's audience against the resurrection. You see, because just about in every other instance where Jesus was preaching, the apostles were preaching in the Gospels, there were uh, enemies there opposing and arguing against what was being said. The reason why there are no opponents arguing against the resurrection is because the witnesses had seen the empty tomb as well. And they had no explanation for it. They had no ammunition to bring. The body was nowhere to be found. And by the way, it still hasn't been found. And people have been looking for it for a couple thousand years. So Jesus proved that he was a son of God with his life and with his death. Next, look at verse 24 with me. This is a great verse, and it's inspired a lot of Easter worship song lyrics. Peter says, it, it, it was God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The witnesses knew that Jesus actually was dead because they saw him publicly executed on a cross. We talked about that on Friday. Execution by crucifixion was very common in the Roman Empire at that time because they wanted to make an example out of criminals to deter others from being disobedient and unruly. And so they knew he died because they saw him die, but then they also knew, well, it couldn't have been one of those situations where, like, you know, he seemed to die just for a few seconds and then sort of came back, like some, some of the movies that we've seen, or, you know, where it was one of those emergency room Surgery, surgery tables, they were on the table, they, they, their heart stopped beating for a few minutes, and then they came back. No, 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 no. He was dead for three days. So nobody's ever done that before. And then they knew his body couldn't have been stolen, because that was one of the other arguments. Well, the disciples, they must have stolen his body in order to try and prove that he was the resurrected Messiah. But that couldn't have happened because there was a two-ton stone rolled in front of the tomb. It was sealed with wax and then put with a, uh, the stamp of the Roman Empire on it, the seal of the Roman Empire, which represented the Roman Empire's power and authority and basically said to everybody, you touch this, you die too. Don't touch this grave. Oh, and then on top of that, they put a Roman guard, a detachment of Roman soldiers in front of the tomb to guard it. And the soldiers were told, 
if anybody gets in this tomb or anybody comes out of this tomb, you die. They knew they had to fulfill their duties or they died. The New Testament tells us the resurrected Christ ate meals with his disciples. Thus, he wasn't a ghost because ghosts don't eat. I know that was shocking revelation for some of you. Wow, I never knew that. <laughs> they, they don't eat. And the resurrected Christ appeared to as many as 500 witnesses over the course of 40 days. So it wasn't just one appearance. It was multiple appearances in multiple locations to multiple people. What that means is, on Friday, Caiaphas couldn't kill him. Pilate found no fault in him. On Sunday, the soldiers couldn't find him. Death couldn't hold him. And the grave couldn't keep him. Now, that's a good spot for an amen, if you believe that. Because I'm trying to boil it all down for you here. Putting the pieces together. Good Friday to Sunday. Jesus, thus, the conclusion is this. I think we have to come to this logical conclusion. His character is credible. And that makes his message believable. He did everything he said he was going to do. It's been proven. And thus, we need to listen to what he has to say. Well, why did Jesus do this? Well, inspired by love, motivated by grace, and saturated with mercy, Jesus wanted to help sinners like you and me conquer death as well, just like he did. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the biggest upset of all time. Next, let's look at verses 36 to 41. As Peter is wrapping up his message, he does what another preacher you like to listen to does. He closes with application. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here's point number two in your outline, the second truth that Peter is telling us, and that is his message demands a decision. Jesus' message demands a decision. It says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. This means that the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of several people in the crowd, convicting them of their sin, showing them they needed a Savior, helping them to see that Jesus was their Savior, that Jesus loved them and wanted a relationship with them, and their hearts were moved to respond. 
The Spirit's work in combination with the preaching of the word, the gospel, brought about the need for a response. So they asked, brothers, what do we do now? You've told us, what are we supposed to do? It's an application, a call to action. Jesus did the same thing during his ministry as well. In Mark chapter 8, he did the same thing to Peter. He says to Peter in Mark chapter 8, who do people say that I am? And Peter rattles off, well, there's some, you know, we've done some polling and we've done some Facebook analytics and uh, it sound, they think, some think you're a prophet, some think you're just a good, nice guy, nicest guy they've ever met, they really like you. And, and, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The 19th century British Bishop J.C. Ryle once said this about the need to make a personal, individual decision to believe and receive Jesus Christ. And I don't want this to be confusing for you. Basically, let me just sum, boil it down for you. A 19th century theologian is going to quote a 17th century theologian here, okay? So here, here's the quote. We'll put it up on the screen behind me. Ryle says, Martin Luther once said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another to say he is my Savior and Lord. The devil can say the first, but the true Christian can say the second. I can't help but ask you this question on this Easter morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Savior? You can put off your answer to that question today if you'd like, but I would urge you not to because none of us has been promised tomorrow. And at one point, when you die, you will have to answer that question from the Lord himself. Who do you say I am? The good news of Jesus Christ is simply this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and then rose again three days later. This took place because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but would have eternal life. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church or where you serve in the church or how much you give to the church or what party you vote for or where you grew up or whether your family went to church, none of that matters. The scriptures clearly, clearly teach those who have a personal, individual, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins, will have peace with God, and the guarantee of eternal life. He's ready to forgive you. He wants to give you a new start if you need a new start in your life. 
And I want to invite you to do that today. So here's the last few blanks on your outline. I wanted to make this as simple and as clear as I can. Here are four simple steps to salvation. What does the Bible say a person must do in order to be saved from their sins? To be saved from the consequences of their sin. To be saved from an eternity separated from God. Here's letter A, the first one. That is, you need to agree with God that you're a sinner. Just like me and everybody else, a sinner that needs to be saved. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As I talked about on Friday, the standard that God has for entrance into heaven is perfection. It's not the standard you want to set or somebody else set. It's his heaven, so it's his standards. Perfection. And because all humans have fallen short of the glory of God and short of that standard, we have earned the wages of sin, which is death. We have earned the consequence of death. Here's letter B. The next thing you need to do is repent of your sin. When starting his ministry, the first message that Jesus preached, which is found in Mark chapter 1, Jesus preached, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. The word repent in the scriptures means literally to do a 180 degree turnaround. To turn away from your sin and to follow God instead. Because you can't follow both. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect to be saved. And it certainly doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It's an attitude, a change in the mind that leads to a change in the heart of, I'm no longer going to love my sin and continue pursuing it. Instead, I'm going to turn, and with God's help, I'm going to follow him. And as soon as I do sin, which I probably will, I'm going to repent, say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, and get right back on track following the Lord. It means you can't love your sin and love Jesus too. But if you forsake your sin and follow him, he'll help you because he doesn't want you to continue sinning. It's not good for us. So agree, repent. Next, letter C, believe. Believe that Jesus died for me and was resurrected. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then finally, surrender. Letter D, surrender and follow. It says in 1 John chapter 2 that whoever believes or, excuse me, claims to know Jesus must follow him and walk as Jesus did. And everybody in the Gospels that came to know Christ as their Savior did that. They realized they had been set free from their sin. They realized what he had done for them and they wanted to follow him with their whole life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest upset of all time. And at the risk of sounding a little, a, a little, uh, a little uh, goofy here, do you want to be on his team? Because <laughs> he hasn't lost. He's undefeated. Would you bow your head and close? Let's close in prayer. Father, first off, we must thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for so loving us and desiring a relationship with us that you 
would offer up your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that anyone who by faith alone, in Christ alone, repents of their sin, they can have a relationship with you that is intimate and personal and meaningful. They can have purpose in their lives, forgiveness, and eternal life. Death no longer needs to be feared because you conquered it. If you've come to the realization that you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, if the Spirit has cut your heart this morning, all you need to do is voice a prayer from your heart, similar, something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I realize that I cannot save myself. I cannot earn my salvation. I believe that you died for me and were resurrected three days later. Please come into my life, take control of my life. Please change me. I want to live for you. Father, for those that are here today that don't know Christ yet, would you help them to say that kind of prayer? Would you make today the day of salvation for them? so that they too can look forward to conquering death. Lord, for those that have already made that personal life-changing decision, but maybe are facing overwhelming circumstances, please, Lord, would you, would you show your resurrection power in their situation that they're facing? Would you show that your power over death can help them overcome their circumstances? We know your word teaches that. Would you provide a breakthrough, Lord? Would you overcome what seems impossible, just like you did with death? Some are facing health issues, some are facing job issues, financial problems, maybe a broken relationship, a child that's wayward, it just seems like there's no way this could ever change. Lord, please, would you change it? Would you change it and show that the power of the resurrection applies in all these areas as well? Thank you, Lord, for love undeserved and unheard of. Thank you, Lord, for leaving your throne, exchanging your comfort for a cross, and carrying it for us. We want to sing and praise you for that. We want to sing unto your name, Jesus on high, be glorified. In his powerful name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.